Uh, not too long ago, computer scientists had a debate. <coughs> they had a debate among themselves as to the gender of a computer. They were trying to figure out if a computer is a him or a her, a male or a female. So uh, the males got together to kind of give their reasons for why they thought computers were female. And so they gave these three reasons for why computers are female. Number one, no one but no one but the creator understands their internal logic. Thank you. At least. Number two, this is why male computer scientists think that computers are female. Number two, the native language computers use to communicate with other computers is totally incomprehensible to everyone else. Somebody had an amen over there. Number three, as soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessories for it. And, and now we're preaching. Of course, as you can imagine, the females got together and came up with their own list of three reasons why computers are male. Number one, these are good. These are real good. Computers are male because they have a lot of data and information, but unless there's a woman to operate it and to translate it, they don't know what to do with it. Number two, as soon as you commit to one, you realize that if you'd waited just a little longer, you probably could have gotten a better model. You think that one's bad? Number three, computers are male because in order to get their attention, you have to turn them on. Sadly more true than we'd like to admit in some ways. Not that, not that last one. <clears throat> Marriage is hard, amen? Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard for a lot of reasons. Relationships are hard for a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest and the most difficult things in marriages, in all relationships really, is that any close relationship, in any close relationship, you learn not only the wonderful things about this person that you were attracted to, that you like to talk about, that were the warm, fuzzy, creating things in that person, you know, that whole thing. You also learn the not-so-wonderful things about this person. You get all the dirt on this person. If you've ever been in a close relationship, whether it's marriage, whether it's dating, whether it's family, uh, even a best friend, any relationship that's close where you grow to know someone well enough to get past that kind of honeymoon phase, you realize that you become well acquainted with one another's sinfulness. You become well acquainted with one another's sinfulness. And when you've entered that mess in a relationship, then you know this truth. And this is, this is true. The problem, the problem is never the problem. The reason you're in a fight, not the reason you're in a fight. The problem is almost never the heart problem. And there are always more important, deeper heart issues going on than the things that, that present themselves to us in those moments where we get in those close relationships and we're in that tug of war with one another. You can be, you can be in an innocent discussion with your spouse, with a parent, a child, a good friend, somebody in your family. Someone can say or do you know just something real quick and in the middle of that conversation it takes an instant turn to like from peace to full-out war because somebody said or did something which suddenly means the problem isn't the problem 
So how does, how, how does something like, something as innocuous or, or, or unimportant as buying groceries, how does buying groceries become World War III? Why, why does that happen? How does that happen? It's because in any close relationship, the problem is never the problem. The real issue you're fighting is something that's deeper, that's inside. And this is very true in marriages, perhaps more than anywhere else, because of the intimacy, the closeness, the, the, the proximity of relationship in a marriage. So we uh, want to check out a young couple here who, who experienced this dynamic in their relationship of how they go from like wedding and, and honeymoon to like instant war in their relationship. Watch this. Okay, two words. Those, they. Two words. 
The problem is never the problem. Somehow it goes from like, you know, buying groceries to World War III. Anybody ever been there? I know a bunch of you are like, I should be raising my hands, but I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somehow the, the amazing bliss of honeymoon can very easily turn into, uh, you know, childish name calling. And I know that some of y'all have been like, oh, that's so na- that's childish at the end, but, but you've been there. You've been there. And that place is where a lot of marriages get stuck. It's where a lot of marriages get stuck. The formula for getting stuck here is sin plus struggle for control equals stuck marriage. Sin plus struggle for control equals a stuck marriage. Layer upon layer upon layer of the mess of sin and the struggle for control means that many marriages become stuck, static, plateaued. They are no longer a place, a laboratory, an environment, a culture where God's goodness is the goal of this relationship. The mess of our, our personal sin and our struggle for control means we get stuck. I want you to turn, to me with, uh, turn with me to Genesis 3 if you're not there already. We're going to start there, Genesis 3, 1 to 6. And look at the first stuck marriage. The first example of how sin results in this struggle for control. In Genesis 3, uh, the, sin, the scene opens here in, in verse 1. It says this, Genesis 3, verse 1, follow along. Now the serpent... Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, notice he's speaking directly to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the scene opens here with with Satan in the form of a serpent tempting the woman by by twisting God's word. He lies by twisting God's command and he is speaking directly to her satan speaks directly to eve in verse one he said to the woman did god actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden well no actually he didn't say that that's not what he actually said god's command wasn't you shall not eat of any tree in the garden in fact if you want to turn back there to genesis two sixteen and 17 in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God says, this is him speaking to, to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but, in other words, every tree is available. My provision is available for you. It's, a, it's an act of grace there. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Notice something important here. And what I'm about to say in the next probably 15 minutes is a particular view of this passage I hold, but not everybody holds. 
But if I'm right about this, it has some really important implications. I'm not going to tell you all of the other views. I'm going to tell you what I think this is saying and what it means for us. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, he didn't. And we just read what he actually did say. It's my conviction that in this exchange here, it was clearly the man's responsibility to tell the woman of God's command. We know this because God tells this directly to Adam before Eve exists. God tells Adam this command in Genesis 2 before we even get to Genesis 3 and before Eve existed. So, so was Eve to somehow just know the answer to the question the serpent posed on her own? Is she supposed to know the answer to the question in 3 1 unless someone had told her? There's only one around. There's only one person around to tell her. So here's the question. We'll come back around at the end of this and answer it. Where is Adam? Where is Adam? We'll come back to that in a minute. So back to verse 1, the serpent speaking, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan's lie here was just a suggestion, the suggestion notice. It was, it was just a hint of this idea that God is this tyrant. It's a subtle suggestion that God is this tyrant who doesn't deserve the glory that he's talking about having and, and, and making the world. He doesn't deserve the glory that he claims he deserves. And, and so the serpent's basically saying, what a selfish God this is, right? Eve, I mean... Think about this. Selfish God doesn't want you to enjoy what He's just created in front of you. What is wrong with this God, Eve? This is, this is how sin starts in your life. This is how sin starts in your life. There was something about this exchange where Eve didn't know, didn't know the answer well enough to the question. It's important to know and to love God's Word. If you aren't clear about what is true, you will easily fall for what is false. And the woman did just that. Look at verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. There's the lie. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, neither shall you touch it. But notice that she's giving in to the subtle suggestion. She's giving in to the hint by the serpent that this tyrannical God doesn't deserve all this glory that he's demanding from them. So she says, he won't even let us touch it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The scene here looks to me like Adam didn't effectively do his job of communicating God's command to Eve. So when the serpent comes in, she caved in. He said, he said, they could eat of any of the trees except for one. But the woman is saying, we can't even touch it. Can you believe he would say that? I mean, how unreasonable of him. He makes all this beautiful creation around us and then he says, ah, d -d 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 -d, not this one. She has believed Satan's lie and, it, and is now even trying to, 
to get the serpent to sympathize with this oh-so-grievous plight of hers. I mean, it's, it's this full outright gossip at this point. Keep reading to verse 4. But the, but the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will have the knowledge that God is trying to keep from you, this, this selfish, tyrannical God who doesn't deserve your glory. You will have the knowledge He's trying to keep from you and you will be like Him. You will be in control. That's the temptation. The temptation is her own control. Verse 6 explains how this happened. So when the woman saw, and she sees three things here, when the woman saw, number one, that the tree was good for food. Number two, that it was a delight to the eyes. And number three, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It says this, she took of its fruit and ate. And remember the question, remember the question, where is Adam? She took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam's with her the whole time. Passively standing by, letting this scene play out. There is no indication in Genesis that Adam fulfilled his responsibility to teach Eve God's previously given command. Listen, friends, the, the silence, the silence of Adam is absolutely killing marriages and families. Because mark my words, a godly man, a godly man speaks for truth when the occasion merits it. That's the definition. That's it. Don't say plus this. This isn't a godly man does this, and then also does this, and then also does this, and then also does this. This is, this is the very beginning of the entire story of God's work of redemption to piece together the sin that just happened. And the silence of Adam is killing marriages and families. And it's leaving kids with this absurd send them to hell idea that the world is about their good and their happiness and their control and their self-actualization in a worldly definition however you want to say that. What this means here in Genesis is that to provide for your household listen men to provide for your household has very little to do with food and shelter and clothing. I would go so far as to say it has almost nothing to do with food and shelter and clothing and material provision. To provide for your household as a man is to know and to live 
and to teach the truth of the Word of God. Everything else in comparison to that primary purpose is almost so unimportant so as to say it doesn't matter. Some of you are wimps who cannot speak up for truth when the time merits it. And you know why? It's because you're scared that you don't know what to say. You don't have the answers. I get it. But listen, the fix is to go home and read this thing, to know the heart of God because you've read it, to know the heart of God so that you can create a place in your marriage and in your home and for your kids where they will become who God made them to be, not who you want them to be. Not who you want them to be. Some of you idolize your kids. And you're struggling, struggling to create an environment in your home where the truth of who God is is the preeminent thing you're teaching them. So, let's jump back in here to the text a little bit. The struggle for control between husband and wife is already in full swing. Uh, That's a way to characterize this whole scene here. A struggle for control between husband and wife. And and really, ultimately, between them and God, but played out in their relationship. Played out in their relationship with one another. Because that's really what's going on in our relationships with one another. We're playing out our rebellion against God in our relationship with one another. That's what's going on. That's what's going on here. So Eve's seeking control by her deceit. Adam is seeking his own control by his silence. And so this struggle for control is what easily characterizes close relationships. Now jump down to verse 16, where God tells the woman, this is the result of the the fall that God is telling them, here's what's going to happen because of this sin. Verse 16, to the woman he said, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then he says to Adam, verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Uh, There's a real helpful little uh, commentary piece here I want to show you on the study notes. I'm going to just read this. Together, It comes from the ESV study Bible notes, which I use daily, which is fantastic. If you need a good study Bible, you would want to consider that one. This is a helpful way for us to think about what's going on here in this passage, especially these couple verses we just read. Look at this here. It says, ESV study Bible notes in the curse in Genesis 3. These words from the Lord indicate there will be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship. The leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationships between husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. This especially takes the form of inordinate desire on the part of the wife and domineering rule on the part of the husband. It says this especially, not always 100% of the time exclusively. It says this especially takes the form of inordinate desire on the part of the wife and domineering rule on the part of the husband. The ongoing result of Adam and Eve's original sin of rebellion against God's will, against God, will have disastrous consequences for their relationship. 
Number one, Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. But, number two, Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife. We'll talk about what that means in a little bit here when we talk about the fix. Replacing this with his own sinful, distorted desire to rule over Eve. Thus, one of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is an ongoing damaging conflict between husband and wife in marriage. Remember we said that we play out our rebellion against God in our relationships with one another. One of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is an ongoing damaging conflict between husband and wife in marriage driven by the sinful behavior of both in rebellion against their respective God-given roles and responsibilities in marriage. Sin plus struggle for control equals a stuck marriage. A stuck marriage where the goal of God's glory being made known, the goal of us becoming increasingly Christ-like, the goal of us producing disciples and being fruitful and multiplying, which isn't just a biological idea, where that is no longer the goal. That's a stuck marriage. You've lost sight of that purpose for why you're together. So how do we fix this? Not easily, not quickly. But the answer is the same for marriage as it is for any relationship. And we're going to turn to Ephesians 5 for that. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. If you don't have that handy yet, you're going to want to have that open. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. The fix is Christ's sacrificial love for the church as the model for all relationships. The model for all relationships is Christ's sacrificial love, even to the point of death kind of love, sacrificial love for the church as the model for all relationships. In this context, he's talking especially about marriage. He also, in Ephesians here, talks about a whole bunch of other kinds of relationships, but here it's especially about marriage and spends a lot of time here because it's a particularly intense uh, relationship. Pick it up at verse 1 here. This is where we see this applied to both husbands and wives. Uh, We don't have time to unpack all this, uh, but we're going to look at it from this viewpoint of Christ's sacrificial love. So verse 21, uh, in my version it says submitting. It continues from the previous verses, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you have the NIV, the New International Version, it starts verse 21 as a sentence after which 22 to 33 follow. Uh, I think that's probably a better way to divide the section. Uh, My Bible divides it with verse 21 as a part of the preceding section. Uh, But verse 21, uh, regardless of your version, sets the tone for what follows in 22 uh, to 33. So so verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's that's the principle. That's the uh, overarching guiding principle for this whole passage and for our marriages and thinking about who we are creating our, our spouse, who we're helping God create our spouse to be in that context. We submit to this person so they can become more like God because, because we revere Christ. Not because this person does for you what you want them to. That's not how this works. You submit out of your reverence and love for Christ's submission to your needs. 
If you love from somewhere else, you will, you will twist, you will manipulate, you will devour your relationships and twist them for your own purposes and goals. I promise you, you will do this. The only, the only way to really love somebody is out of this place that is like the love Christ demonstrated in dying for us. And we do that because we love Him. I love my wife because I love Christ. Not I love my wife because she does for me what I want. What a terrible way to think about your relationships. You will time and again twist and manipulate the people around you for your twisted goals. Promise. Submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. So he applies this to both wives and husbands. Verse 22, wives, first, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Wives are to submit. This is, this is an important concept here. Wives are to submit to their husbands out of respect for their husband's death to self. Wives are to submit to their husbands out of their respect for their husband's own death to self. Not because he puts a roof over your head. As Christ died for the church, so husbands die to self for the sake of their spouses. And because of their submission for the sake of their wives, wives respect and, and love them for that. Just like we love Christ for his death for us. So verses 22 to 4 here that we've just read there operate under the assumption that husbands are dying to self for their wives. Unless you think this is all about wives' submission, Paul spends three times as much space directing the husband. Jump in at 25 here. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There, there was no limit to which Christ would go for the sake of his people. So in that same manner, husbands are to love their wives and to give themselves up for her. Her here uh, is, is initially, first it's the church there, gave himself up for there, the church, because he's talking about Christ who died for the church. But it's also secondarily out of that truth, the truth of loving the church, uh, loving your wife and giving yourself up for her. And so he died, meaning Jesus died for this purpose. Verse 26, that, this is, this is huge here, for the purpose that he might sanctify her. You love your wife so she can become like Jesus. Not so you can get your jollies met. Not so that you can be self-actualized as a man. Your, your primary purpose is to create an environment where your wife becomes who God made her to be. Which means she will tell you sometimes that you are supposed to do something else. And you will have to say, my main role is to ensure that you become who God made you to be. You have to have a discerning mind about the truth of what God's calling us to. 
to provide what she really needs. She may sometimes know that better than you if you're an immature, if you're an immature man. So verse 26 gives us the purpose that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Remember, we're talking about the church, but we're also talking about marriage. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ did the church, because we are members of his body. And then Paul reaches back to Genesis 22 uh, to explain this is why God instituted marriage. He says, therefore, for this reason, for the purpose of the husband and the wife becoming who God made them to be, for this purpose, especially as it relates to a husband doing this for a wife, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two become one, one flesh, one purpose. If there are multiple purposes, shopaholic. If there are multiple purposes in your marriage that are not about, at least in some general terms, the goodness and the glory of God being made known in our lives, if there are some conflicting purposes there, that struggle for control will play itself out. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, not to somebody else's wife, not to the computer screen when nobody's looking, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And everything, in other words, everything I'm telling you about how to properly do relationships in your home, in your marriage, and your family comes from understanding Christ's sacrificial love for his bride, the church. He finishes up verse 33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Sort of a summary statement of that whole passage there. Friends, if our, if our marriages were, marriages and all our relationships were marked by this one truth that we are given the purpose to create an environment in these relationships so that others can become more like Jesus, it would revolutionize our lives and our community and your family and your marriage. It would mean the marriages could be less about a struggle for control and more about the greater purpose of submission to God's purpose of your holiness. It would mean that this petty struggle for control would be about a mutual submission to God's purposes to make you more like Him. Which is why marriage is a promise. It's a covenant. We think of a covenant as a contract between two people, and it is. But biblically, a covenant is only a covenant if it's made as a promise to God first that lives itself out, lives its promise out to one another. So we need to be men and women who covenant with God to seek the good of this other person by dying to self, which means, which means there are going to be lots and lots and lots and lots of times 
where you're going to just have to say, you know what, it's time to shut my mouth and just say I'm sorry and admit my part in this without having to control, control this other person. You're just going to have to do that because that's submission to this other person becoming like Christ. In situation after situation after situation, that promise you make to God is going to have to be the area out of which, the thing out of which you live for the purpose of this other person in the relationship. I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. Uh, Marriage is one of the hardest things probably the hardest thing any of us will ever do because it's a, it's a way that God squeezes us into his growth plan. And, and it will be a growth plan if you let it. If you let it. Well, we saw that couple earlier who uh, got deep into the mess after the honeymoon. Uh, let's see how they regrouped and uh, got on the same team here. want to put out before you two, uh, two practical ways that help create an environment in your relationships, uh, in your marriage, in your relationships, where God's goodness can grow. Two things. Number one, we've got this in your study notes. Let go of your addiction to control. Let go of your addiction to control. And I think addiction is a pretty good word for it. Uh, friends, control for most areas of our lives is more of an illusion than we care to admit. So many of us are so keen myself included, on controlling our environment and the people around us. If you would just control yourself, it would help your relationship even more. You can't control another person and you won't. And if you do, you will make them into the self-righteous person you want them to be for your own stuff. That's what you'll do. And if you let go of the control of addiction, listen, this is, this is big. <laughs> if you let go of the control, it will free you to love people for who they are and not for what they do for you. That's big. It will free you to love people for who they are and not for what they do for you. It will also free you to not have to be upset at what they do to you. Secondly, look for the work of God in others. This sounds simple, and it's really pretty simple, but it's a profound truth that could could revolutionize our relationships with others. Let me ask you this. When's the last time 
you had a conversation with somebody and they asked you a lot of questions about you. For some of you, you're sitting there going, oh, I honestly can't even remember the last time. <laughs> it's because nobody does that. Nobody does that. You know why they don't do that? Because they're pretty much sitting there going, what can you do for me? Just talking about me all day long. Me, 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 me. Some of us need to just shut our mouths and practice looking for the work of God in other people. I mean, seriously. Christ-like love is in a relationship and says, I'm going to seek the good of this other person because the work of God in this other person matters. Some of us need to just shut up and stop talking about ourselves all day long. God's at work in people, but you are blind to see it. If you will seek the work of God in other people, it will create an environment in your relationship where His goodness can grow in that person. And guess what? For you too. Friends, it's too important. The stakes matter too much for us uh, to fritter away, to fritter away our time and our resources in this life on our uh, pathetic earthly goals. God made us for something more important. God made us to become more like Him so that our lives would give Him glory. And, and if we would just practice these two things, God would, would come and, and show Himself in a way which we would think only happens when we get to heaven, but we would see it today in the lives of our families and our marriages if we just practiced these things. Let's pray together.